0: Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you now ready for the word, God. We're hungry for a fresh word right here in this moment. We ask that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that you would just use me, anoint me, come upon me, give me strength, give me the ability to communicate your word clearly, God. And then we just give you permission now to move in this place and do a specific thing uniquely that you want to do right now here in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, open up your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And so here's what I'm going to do. We're starting a series today, and the series, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, the series is going to be called Sons of Issachar. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a few verses in 1 Chronicles 12. And then I'm going to jump down and I'm going to read some more verses. And I'm going to kind of explain to you why we're doing it that way. And we're going to dig in. So 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 23. It says, Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. So let's just pause for a second. So here's what's happening. David, we know, was anointed to become king by Samuel many years prior to this event. But there was a tarrying time, if you will, before David was actually instilled into the throne, before it was actually time for him to be king. So there's a lesson in that, because the anointing, the calling, was was actually put on David, but it needed time to mature and incubate before it was ready to be birthed. And here's what I see a lot of times happens in people's lives is they'll get a wind of a calling, they'll get a, you know, an idea of what God's put on their life, which is great, he's good like that, but then a lot of times we don't recognize uh, that the timing of God might be different on the fulfillment than it was on the issuance of the calling, does that make sense? And so now we get ahead of God and we put our hand to it and we try to like force this thing. So what's important to notice about David is that he never tried to put himself into the throne. Even though he had been anointed by the prophet Samuel, I mean, that's as legit as it gets, right? Like, Saul knew, like, I'm done. But it just happened to be a number of years before David ended up being put in the throne. In fact, David went as far as to not even hurt Saul or harm Saul when Saul was trying to kill him out of jealousy. David had two opportunities to take Saul's life. Here's what he said. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He basically said, look, I'm gonna be king Saul's not, um, but I don't need it to be by my own hand that makes this thing happen. I'm not gonna harm Saul, even though he's a kind of a wicked man. The Lord anointed him to be king at one point, and I'm not gonna touch that. I'm gonna let the Lord deal with that. Yes. Such a beautiful picture of patience and you know, poise, and having faith in the calling of God to come to full maturation in our lives. And so, thus, when the time came, David was ready, David was prepared. That's what's going on in this story here, David is in a place called Hebron and he's now ready to take the throne. Saul has been killed in battle and there are troops, armies that are coming to to support David from all the different tribes of Israel. We know there are 12. And so of the 12 tribes men and warriors are coming and David's army is growing, the support for him is growing. And they are now ready to back him to make him the official king over all of Israel now. Pretty awesome point in the scriptures. So we're going to jump down because the next number of verses, what they do is they describe the men and the warriors and the numbers of those warriors that are present from all these different tribes that are coming to David. But there's one tribe in particular that I want to focus on. And as you may already know, because of the title of the series, sons of Issachar. It's the tribe of Issachar that I want to draw your attention to today and some things that I feel like the Lord has just really opened up to me in the last number of weeks. So verse 32 it reads, of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were two hundred and all their brethren were at their command. So Who were these guys? Sons of Issachar. Well, first of all, we know Issachar was one of 12 sons of Jacob, right? 12 sons of Jacob make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And Issachar was the fifth son by one of Jacob's four wives, Leah. So Jacob had 12 sons by four women. I mean it's a Jerry Springer episode all over I'm telling you like you'd have a heyday with this thing it's it's complicated okay never said you know people in the Bible there's messy situations there and so uh, Issachar was the fifth son of Jacob and Leah when it says in these verses the sons of Issachar it's referring to the entire tribe and you just go by the name of their forefather a lot of times when they speak about the tribe. Because this is centuries later from, from Issachar being born to Jacob and Leah. David's along here now centuries later after that had happened. And so there's something about these sons of Issachar that really, really grabbed me recently. I was studying these verses and reading this, and the statement that they had understanding of the times really just kind of grabbed me and pulled me in. Anybody ever have that where you're reading the Bible and like something just jumps out at you? Look, I can't encourage you enough, drive that well deep when it happens. Because many times that's the Holy Spirit illuminating something or drawing you in to an area that God wants to begin to give you deep revelation on. Right? We we read the whole word, but we go deep in places throughout our life in different intervals. And so I can't encourage you to do that enough whenever that happens. That's what God was doing to me, and I thought about this statement, they had understanding of the times. And I thought, man, that's really interesting. You know, that sounds familiar. And so I started studying in the Bible where that phrase was at so that I could learn more about what that meant. But the phrase, I could not find it anywhere else in Scripture. Now, if you find it, come tell me. But I looked, i studied, I researched, I cannot find that anywhere else in the Bible. I thought, that's really interesting. But I, I knew that it sounded similar to some language that I'd read in the New Testament. And one of the places where I heard something similar to this is in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Now, this is when Jesus is getting ready to ascend off the Mount of Olives and go back to heaven after he's already been crucified, resurrected. He appeared for 40 days among men and disciples. That's where we're at, and he's getting ready to go back to heaven. And he's talking to the disciples about how he's going to return again. And so the disciples are asking him, as I would probably be too, yo, when are you coming back, Jesus? Like, how long are you going to be gone, right? How, how long are you hanging? How long are we hanging until you return? And just is what Jesus says. This is his response. He says, well, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So he's basically saying, none yet. He's like, I'm not telling you. Because, and this is what's interesting, is he's referring to the return, his return, which is, as Christians, we believe in the first and second advent of Christ, which means he came once and fulfilled the work on the cross as the Messiah, but he's coming again to return for his bride and defeat Satan once and for all and throw him in the lake of fire, right? So we're, that second coming hasn't happened yet, obviously. And so Jesus is explaining that and they're wanting to know when he's going to return. And he's saying, look, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in my own authority. So that times and seasons, I thought, man, that's, that's kind of what I, re- I feel like the understanding of the times is similar to that. So when you look at understanding of the times in Chronicles, in the Hebrew, what that means is that they had a discernment and an awareness that was basically supernatural. We're not talking about knowledge from experience because they had just been on the earth a long time or they had a lot of experience. That's good, but that's not what we're talking about here. They had a supernatural understanding, Alan, of the times, which means the generation or the season that they're living in. So it's kind of like an extended period of time, but it's still a finite period of time. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is saying in this verse, he's saying, look, it's not for you to know times, which is the word in the Greek chronos, which means the exact hour and the exact moment, the exact, it's a specific period point of time. He says, it's not for you to know times, chronos, or seasons, which is the Greek word kairos, which means like a a, a period of uh, opportunity, a season, you know, like an extended period of time. So I'm like, that's, Very interesting. So you go, and then I remember that it says in the Bible in Acts chapter 17, that God has, he says that he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, Kairos, and the boundaries of their dwellings. I'm trying to kind of take you through to open all this up because we're getting into a series and I just, I want to really open up this in the beginning for you to see. That word kairos in times, again, in this particular passage of scripture, the interpretation means, this is so cool, that God has specifically designed as part of your purpose for you to live here in the generation that you live in right now. Now, have you ever like, thought the, had the thought or maybe said the statement, man, I wish I would have lived 100 years ago, or man, I, I should have been born in the 1500s or something crazy like that right? We kid around, we say stuff like that. I've said stuff like that. But the reality is, when you read the word of God, you see clearly that God is a God of divine design in every way possible. So even the time and the generation that we're living in right now is specifically designed by God as part of your purpose that he has for you, which, let me just remind you, implies that you have a specific work and contribution to make to the kingdom of God here and now in this day and in this generation. Isn't that amazing? That we realize, hey, God's put us on this earth when he's put us on this earth to make an impact and make a difference for him right now. So no matter what kind of kairos, season, generation that we're living in, And they are all filled with different perplexities of their time, different challenges and things that come against the church. There's always different kinds to each season. But whatever they are, if we're here now, then we are meant to face those things head on and bring victory to those things in our lives and in the body of Christ. Isn't that awesome? And it even said of David... That whenever he had served God, fully served him with his whole heart and his, and his life, when he had served God in his generation, then he fell asleep. So when his time was done and he did all God put him on the earth to do and the kingdom was advanced through him at that time, he fell asleep. Look, our lives, James tells us, is like a vapor. It's, it's a morning mist that's here and gone, like that. That's our life. That's our finite period of time. And David served God with his whole life, but when he was done, he fell asleep. But David was created and designed by God to live in exactly the era, the age, and the season, the kairos that he lived in. And he did something about that in that kairos. Are you getting me? You are not created to live when David lived, and David was not created to live when we live right now. We have a mission as well to do something in this world for God while we're still breathing. And we need to accept that responsibility and move forward with that mission. I love that. So I thought, man, this, is really, this, this really is very similar, this idea of kairos and season, finite period of time. And so here's what I did. I started really studying this. And when you look at the Old Testament, of course we know it's written in Hebrew. But in the early centuries, when the church started exploding, even when Jesus was around, the predominant language really, even in the Jewish culture it was starting to happen, was Greek because it was just so predominant in the area. Fast forward a couple hundred years and it was almost all Greek and Hebrew was rarely even spoke even among Jewish people in many dialects, okay? So here's what they did. They went back because the Gentiles were grafted in to the Jewish nation, into Israel, and we became one church so they went back and they they actually transcribed the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, so that they could understand the Old Testament as well as the New Writings that God was speaking. Well, when you read it's, that book, is called the Septuagint, by the way, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Well, when you read the Septuagint, are you like, oh, I can't wait to go read that? You know, yeah. So when you read the Septuagint. In First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, what we just read about men of Issachar, sons of Issachar, had understanding of the times. The word it uses is kairos. They had understanding of the season, of the generation, of the moments that they were living in right then and there. And it says they knew what Israel ought to do. So here's what you start to figure out if you study these guys. And there's not a ton, like I say in the Bible about them, but there's enough that we're going to plow into over the next few weeks. And here's what you'll find, is that the sons of Issachar were sought out by the rest of the tribes. Now this is unique, because most of the tribes, we know, they're all one nation, they're one people, but everybody was assigned to their own territory, they had their own, you know genealogies and they kind of did their own things they were different in their crafts and their livelihoods all that stuff but the sons of Issachar were specifically sought out by the rest of the tribes because they had something that everybody else needed they had an understanding and an awareness a discernment of the times that they were living in that was supernatural it wasn't just something they figured out because they were smart guys it's because God was imparting to them by way of supernatural source an understanding about what was happening in the world and importantly what they ought to do about it not just what what Issachar should do what all of Israel should do about the understanding that they were given for these times are you tracking with me so far Heavily influential people. So here's what I need to say to you now. And this is my burden for this series, quite frankly. The sons of Issachar, in my opinion, are a perfect picture of what the church, the body of Christ, needs to look like now in this kairos, in this generation. The church that Jesus came to establish is meant to be the most influential organization in all stratas of our society, we should be the people affecting and leading the way in our culture today not being pulled and led by the culture let's just let's just be frank let's look around right even in the last week we've got tons of people, even probably Christians followers of Christ that are in a panic and in a frenzy and being completely motivated by fear, by all this virus and everything that's going around. Now listen, I am not making light of this, so you please don't misunderstand me. It's serious and we need to know about these things, we need to be aware. But what I'm saying is, is that there are a lot of people who are being led, it's like a bit in a mouth being pulled and being led into what's happening in culture in a way where the mentality that pervades that, if you look at it objectively, com- completely contradicts the principles of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven says that Jesus is, is our protector, that God is our savior, he's our warrior, he's our banner and our fortress, that he's our refuge, that we don't have to fear anything. But is saying be afraid, be fearful, be worried, you never know what's gonna happen, right? And people are in a panic and in a frenzy. Here's the problem with that. Anything that's fear driven or fear motivated is not from God. You gotta know that. Like fear is not from God. It says perfect love casts out fear. We're talking about fear that involves torment. So here you've got people who are being pulled, who are being led by culture instead of the picture we need to see, which is the church is actually leading culture. And I don't mean just from inside the walls. I mean the body of Christ, men and women of our generation, positioned in all the different stratas of society, influencing and leading the way, bringing peace and calmness and steadfastness in the lives and hearts of people. That, does that make sense? This good. Thank you. This is good. This is good. And so the sons of Issachar are the ones who are leading the way in this time, in this generation, and and the rest of the tribes are coming to them. And this is a picture of what we need the church to look like today. So let's talk about some of the things the sons of Issachar were known for. First of all, they had great political insight. They had ability to see into what God was doing and what the nation needed to do politically. Let me prove that to you. Put verse 33 back up there for just a second. So it says that the chiefs were 200 and all of their brethren were at their command. Now, when you read all of the other tribes, there's something distinctly different about the way it describes them than it does Issachar. It says in Issachar that all of their brethren were with them. And the rest of the tribes, it gives numbers of the warriors, numbers of the people. Now, I can't specifically prove that every single tribe besides Issachar was divided around their support of David, but we know some of them definitely were because the tribe of Benjamin is where Saul came from and there were a lot of people in the tribe of Benjamin that still wanted Saul's lineage that they they weren't sure but they wanted to be loyal there. But every other tribe, it just lists off a number of how many of them were there that rally and support David. But the sons of Issachar... It says all of the brethren were behind them. They were united and they were in full support of this. What does this mean? It means that they recognized now is the appropriate time. This is what God is doing and saying. It's time for David to be king. It wasn't time 10 years ago, it wasn't time five years ago, but it's time now. And we are entirely supporting and behind him because we know that this is what God is saying and this is what God's doing. So it's a great political insight. You, you remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached on, um, out of Judges, was anybody here for that? And Judges, and I talked about Deborah, and Deborah and Barak went out to defeat Sisera and the Canaanites. Well, in Judges chapter 5, one of the things it says is that the sons of Issachar were with Deborah and Barak when they went out to battle. So what does that tell me? That tells me that they had, again, political insight to recognize and say, which probably wasn't a common belief at the time given culture but they had the ability to say well this is a woman but this is who God's put in position this is the woman that's going to lead and we see that God is on her there's a favor on her life there's an anointing there and we're following her into battle because we believe victory's coming so they, they saw all of that and they were able to lead the rest of the tribes because they had this kind of understanding they had great agricultural insight we know that the region that they were in afforded them the opportunity to farm and raise livestock okay they were kinda like in the the middle range there were some mountains and some valleys and fertile land where they where they were at um, and they were able to raise livestock and, and farm crops but they had really great agricultural insight and if you study Jewish history you find that in the early centuries many of the Jewish writings and historians speak about the sons of Issachar having a high aptitude and understanding of astrology this is interesting like planets and moon and Sun and all that kind of stuff they were able to discern based on astrological conditions what was happening in the agricultural cycle so when the moon or the stars or different phases would line up they know it's time to plant crops it's time to harvest crops it's time to wait don't harvest yet You know, they had all of this insight because they could understand astrology. Now, despite what you might think, they did not have Google Calendar, okay? I mean, they didn't have a a little calendar where it says, okay, here's when the spring and fall equinox and summer, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, spring and summer equinox and all that, are solstice, you know, all that stuff, here's when they are. Uh, Siri, can you remind me, put an alert in there for the equinox so I know to plant crops, They didn't have a calendar that marked out all the days of the month that said, here's whenever the equinox was and all that. They had an understanding of these things, though, without any of those sources available to them. Why? Because they had impartation. They had understanding of the times and the seasons that they were in because God was giving that to them in those moments. And lastly, they had great spiritual insight, which I would say is so important for us today to recognize that we, we ought to be able to look around, I'm not saying you don't kinda of get thrown off in your life at times, you do, but you mostly ought to be able to look around and say, this is what God's up to right now. This is what God's doing in our community, in our church, in, our, in my life, in my family, like God's doing something. Here's what he's up to, here's what he's leading us to do so that we're people of action. And so they had spiritual insight coming, coming off of the heels of the astrology and the moon and the stars and all that other stuff they, they knew what to do with the times because the, summer, the moon and the stars and all that would dictate when festivals and feasts of Israel that God ordained them to keep back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus... All these feasts and festivals where they would come in to worship, they would have Sabbath, they would have times where they would not work, where they would all come in together, honor the Lord, worship the Lord, they were obviously figured out because of the day and the season which they figured from the stars and the moon and all the celestials. So they would call, they would look to the sons of Issachar to understand it's time to come in and worship. It's time for our religious feasts, our festivals, and the honor in God and obey and uphold the word that he's already given us. You see that? They relied on them for guidance. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, Moses is blessing the tribes before he departs from them and he's, he's blessing Zebulun and Issachar together. There's another sermon in that one. but So he says, Rejoice Zebulun in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. They shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. What does that mean to call the people to the mountains? Well, before the temple period, which is where we are here, the temple hasn't been built, house of the Lord, where they would go to worship. Before that... They would go to the high places. The mountains was known for the places of worship. Are you getting this? And so they would call the people to the mountains. Come, guys, it's time to worship. It's time to enter into the presence. It's time to go and give God glory, be refreshed, be strengthened, and go out filled up and ready for what God has for us to do. They called them to the mountains, and they were able to discern what was happening in those moments. So we have to be a people we, we are meant to be a people who are leading the way in our generation and in our culture today, not being led by what culture is doing. Would you agree with that? We have to rise up and be that people. But in order to do that, we cannot react to what culture is doing and saying. If, if we're reactionary, then it's like a knee jerk, right? You ever go to the doctor and it, boom, you hit your like, thing, and it, it happens no matter what you do. It just you can't stop it. You just react to things. Reacting is not good. We need to be leading the way and leading the charge. But in many cases, people even in the church just simply react like what we see right now. And then they get into this downward spiral. And they're caught up right in the midst of this cultural dilemma that is contrary to what the word and what the kingdom of heaven says about how we live. We can't react. One time, I remember Katie and I, we were were on a business trip. And we were there with some of our business colleagues and we were all hanging out having lunch or whatever it was before we went home. And so we finished our meal and we went back to the hotel room and we were packing all of our stuff up, Jane, to get ready to go back. And um, I'd finished my bag and I'm laying on the bed and I'm just relaxing, I got my hands kind of like up over my head, you know, my eyes closed, just relaxing on the bed. And for whatever reason, Katie decides to run over and then she jumps up on the bed, and she, like, jumps up on top of me. Now, like, hang with me. Don't let your mind go in the wrong direction here, okay? This, this was not where child number one came from, all right? <laughs> Several years later. So she jumps up on top of me, and she starts tickling me. Now, I am terribly ticklish. I can't, I mean, I just, I'm not responsible for what happens to somebody when they start tickling me. I just can't control my flailing and everything, especially the bottom of my feet. Anybody else at the bottom of your feet, like, oh, I mean, just even thinking about, it, yeah, thank you, Dustin. Oh, man, it's like, you tickle my feet, that's it, it's over. I mean, I might, I might knock a kid out. I don't know, it's possible. I cannot handle it. The kids saw it all jump on top of me at one time and hold me down, like bowling pins flying off. They start doing that. So Katie's on top of me, she starts tickling me, and immediately I just react. I, I, no thought went into it whatsoever. I jerked my arms down thinking I got to protect myself, I got to save myself, and as I jerk my arms down, I I don't know if it was my fist or my elbow, don't speak, and I hit her, (laughs) it hit her right in the nose, and just exploded her nose, like just blood just everywhere, all over the place, yeah, yeah, I'm like, this is not, this is not going to be good, so then, you know, she, we stuff it full of, napkins and paper towels and then her eyes are already getting dark circles her eyes are bloodshot and oh it was yeah it was serious and so we go back to the airport and we had just been with our friends like an hour ago having lunch and they're like whoa what, what happened to you should we call somebody are you okay honey like it's like no you know so i just reacted to the situation instead of having a, a response and and leading the way the way that i should have right and this is what happens when we react to what's happening people get hurt sometimes it's just Katie but you know when we when we react to situations instead of leading the way and responding sometimes people just get hurt but the children of Issachar they had a discernment and an understanding about what was going on in the times and what to do and they also had a wisdom of what to t- how to take action about that. Don't you love that? Like there's discernment and understanding of this is what's going on. But wisdom also leads us to action in how to approach, how to handle and respond to those things. We need both working hand in hand so that we can accomplish what God's wanting us to do, but he's filling us with something that is not available to us from an earthly source. That's what I want you to get. We, we live in a time that things are changing constantly. I mean, it's, it's almost like chaotic in a way where the thought process around issues like morality and all these other things, it's like changing drastically. I, I was just reading an article there's this guy named uh, Fuller, Fullerton. He created this thing called the knowledge doubling curve, the human knowledge doubling curve. And he did all this research, came up with these metrics where like for centuries of time, going way back, he showed that knowledge for a long time basically doubled, human knowledge basically doubled every century, so every 100 years. But now, based on the same metrics and the same study, human knowledge is doubling every 12 months. That's pretty incredible. And they're saying that at the rate it's going, it won't be long, and it'll be down to a matter of just days. Every so many days, human knowledge will be doubling. Why is that important? This is the reality of the times that we live in. This is the reality of our kairos. You get that? Of our season. We can't be afraid of that. We can't run from that and pretend it's not there. We have to face that head on and trust the wisdom of God to supersede the knowledge of man and be the people who are actually leading the way in this world and influencing the culture that we live among. That's our role, that's our responsibility. But we know that there's competing forces at work here. There always are, right? There's competing forces. James tells us this in his epistle. He says that there is knowledge that is from above, which means it's a heavenly source. It comes from heaven. It flows out of heaven. That's where it originates. It says knowledge from above, but he says there's also, you must beware, knowledge from beneath, okay, that's not from above. Here's what he says about that. You got to get this. He says that that knowledge, first of all, is worldly, which means that it Operates according to the function and the principles of the kingdom of this world, and we know that the prince of the power of the air is over influencing the kingdom of this world. He says, No, 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 knowledge is not from above, it's worldly. He says, It's sensual, meaning your senses are in play. Now, we know that we learn from our senses, but at the end of the day, we can't rely on our senses alone. To be the ultimate like authority in our lives, right? Sometimes you have an emotion, you feel something, but how you feel may not be in alignment with what God says. You can feel depressed. That doesn't mean that you are depressed. Do you know what I'm saying? So we have to trust what God says. He says the wisdom from beneath is sensual. And then the last thing he says is it's demonic. He says it's demonic, which is the Greek word demonio or demonios, which means behaving like a demon. Wow. Wow. So here's the the point of this. There's these conflicting knowledge bases that we have to determine which one we're going to subscribe to, which one we're going to hook into, and which one we're going to be governed and led by. Satan is a master of misdirection. He wants to mislead us into buying in to principles and cultural trends that will determine and govern our lives. We're not careful, that will happen. We become servants and slaves to the world's order, the world's kingdom. Is anybody here today? Like, we gotta know that. But he says that's, that's not the way that God wants us to live, and that's not what he has for us. James also says this. He says that if any of you desire wisdom, this is in James chapter one. You can put that up there. He says, if any of you desire wisdom, then ask of God, And he will give to all liberally and without reproach. It will be given to him. Now leave that up there for a second. Listen, if you lack wisdom, that means if you need understanding from God, wisdom from God, direction from God about anything in your life that you're presently unsure about, you would lack wisdom about that. I'm in that place right now. Anybody else? There's things that you're thinking about, like, God, I need to hear from you right now on this. So if you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God. To ask is not a casual ask. This is where like, you know, sometimes you read it in the English and then you can miss things when you read it in the original translation. So the word that's used in the original translation is the same word that Jesus used when he said, if you ask, you will receive. Knock and it will be open to you, right? So to ask in the translation, it means to ask and keep asking. It's a present ongoing tense of the verb, which means it's not a one-time ask. It's a continual coming to God, seeking and pursuing, knowing that as we keep asking, he keeps giving. Are you with me? It's not a one-time deal, and you check, and you're, you're one and done, and then you just wait on it. You keep asking. You keep pursuing, and I don't know why he doesn't always bring all of the insight in the moment, but I know eventually he does if we stay in that place where we keep asking. It's like our kids, you know, sometimes they just keep asking and asking. and You know what I mean, Ash? Like, you're like, stop! You know, it'd be nice if they're just like, hey, could we do this? No, not today. And like, okay, Mom, okay, Dad, that's fine. We'll take that. And they just keep asking. Could okay, please, please. And I'm thinking like, okay, it's not good now, but that's a picture of how Jesus wants us to be with him. You know, we just keep asking, keep pursuing. All the parents get that. All right. So he says, and when we do, he gives to us liberally, which is in abundance, beyond what we're even asking for. Don't you love that? He fills your tank to overflow beyond what you even know that you need and think that you need. He gives to all liberally, and here's a great part of this, and without reproach. Which basically means, and you can find this in another place in Scripture, similar statement, where he says that God is no respecter of persons. Okay? You got to get this. This is huge. That means... That if you have the Spirit of God living in you, if you're born again, the Spirit of Christ lives in your heart, if He's there, then you have access to this. What that doesn't mean, which some people falsely believe or think, is that somehow there are certain people in the church or in the church world who are just more qualified for these kind of things than others. I want to tell you something I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for a day or for 50 years this is available to you this is available to you the wisdom of God now you'll learn it more you'll grow in it you'll understand him more but it's available to you the moment the Spirit of God enters your heart and you're born again you now have access to the full wisdom and full counsel of God isn't that beautiful he's no respecter of person so we should rise up strong and grow in that, and know we have a loving heavenly father who will give to all of his children liberally that way, if we trust and believe him when we ask. He's a loving father. Why would he say, I love you more than someone else? I'll give you more than someone else. Why would he do that? He's a loving father. Do you love any of your kids differently? Do you love some more than others? Be quiet right now. (laughs) No, he's a loving father, and he gives to all liberally. But this wisdom is flowing from a heavenly origin, a heavenly place, and and the spigot is up to us to access. It's there. It's able to just pour into your life if you want to receive it. But you cannot find it in this world. You cannot find it with natural means. Listen to this. In Job chapter 28, he's speaking about the wisdom of God. This is what it says, verse 12. He says, where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. Jump down to verse 20. So where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? For it's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. And here it is, verse 23, but God understands its way and he knows its place. Do you get that? The whole earth is looking around at this question, where is wisdom? Where is it at? And it's all saying, we don't know, we've heard about it, we've, we've heard something, but it's not here, it's not with us. You can't get it from this, you can't buy it from me. Where would you go? There's one place you go, and that is to God himself, to bring the answer, to bring that understanding into your life, and there's no other means by which you can attain it. That's why Jesus, when he's talking to Peter, you remember this, when he said, well, who do you say I am, Peter. And Peter said, well, you're Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. You remember what he said? He said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Meaning, there's no way you could have known this. No way you could have had access to this, no way you could have figured this out on your own. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You see, Peter had his eyes unveiled. He had his heart opened up and God just showed him something that he could not see with natural eyes, that he saw with spiritual eyes. He began to see a little more clearly, a little more like God sees, to understand the situation a little more like God fully understands the situation. And that's a picture of what God is inviting us into in our lives if we'll walk with him in a way where wisdom is constantly flowing into this. Is this helping anybody today? All right, so let me just say this. Proverbs 19.21, you have to rely on God's wisdom and not the knowledge of this world. We know that the Bible says knowledge of the, this, this knowledge of the world, that it puffs up. It makes men arrogant, makes them fool of themselves to think they're more enlightened than what they truly are, right? Proverbs 19.21 says, well, there are plans in a man's heart, but nevertheless, it's the Lord's counsel that will stand. Psalms 33.11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Don't you love that? This is what stands the test of time. Not the passing transient trends of our culture that come and go you know, what we think we're so sure of right now and scientific evidence, we'll be unsure of 30 years from now. You can bet your mark that's gonna come and something else is gonna change. It's happened all through the centuries. But the counsel of God, the wisdom of God is what will stand the test of time. Everything in this earth is transient. It's, it's all gonna turn to dust one day. But the wisdom and counsel of God will last forever. And what's beautiful is, is that we can come to God and we can ask him for the big things and I just I want to encourage you in this today and for the as you might describe them and I might describe them the little things I don't know that God would describe them that way because he counts every hair on our head so I think it's all important to him but we might say we go to God for the big things but we also go to God with daily wisdom for daily living in the small things too let's look at the two the big things okay let's consider Joshua and the way they took Jericho now do you think for one second that Joshua saw the city of Jericho, got his captains together in a war room and said, guys, let's let's figure this out. This Jericho's a huge city, huge thick walls, very, very tall. Chariots can march around them. Like, we, we need a plan, guys. We need to come up with the best plan we've ever come up with here. And do you think that as they were sitting in there, all the experience that they had, all the war knowledge, all the battlefront time that they had, led them to a point where they said, we've, we've got it. We've got the perfect plan. Here, here's what we're going to do. We, we're we're going we're to march around the city for seven days. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. When we do it, we're, we're, we're going to blow trumpets. Ah, we're going to blow trumpets. Oh, man, we're going somewhere now. We're going to march around the city seven days, we're going to blow trumpets. And on the seventh day, oh my gosh, get this, we're going to do it seven times. Seven times, and then we're going to blow trumpets after the seventh time, and the walls are going to fall down. And we're just going to go in and take the city. Oh, brilliant plan, gentlemen. Way to go. All the experience, all of the knowledge that we've attained in our life and our time has led us to this point. No. But that is exactly what happened. And it says that God spoke that strategy to Joshua. He needed to hear from God to provide an answer to a situation God was, in fact, leading them into. And there was no no frame of reference, no point of experience that could have ever led them to a point where that was the solution that they came up with. But it's available in the little things too. I've seen over my life for years and years since walking with the Lord that this wisdom is available at any moment, at any time that we go to God, believing that he will give as we ask. Again, I say, maybe it isn't immediately in that moment, but God's view of time is different than ours, right? So he's gonna bring that. We just keep asking. But I remember one time um, back, this was probably 15 years ago, so I had a snow plow business that I did kind of on the side, just another one of the businesses I was in, and I did that through the winter. Well, because, you know, it doesn't work in the summer. And so I was plowing the snow, and one one year there was this major storm, and it was snowing like crazy, and it it hit and started at like 1 o'clock in the morning. So I got out there, and I'm plowing away, and it's like three o'clock. There's nobody around anywhere. It's coming down like inches by the hour. And I'm in this parking lot, there are no lights there, it's dark, just the lights from the truck, and I'm, I'm plowing this parking lot, and all of a sudden, everything shuts down on me, Jake. The whole system crashes, the plow won't move, I can't lift it, I mean, I'm stuck there because you, if you can't lift the plow, you can't even really move and go on, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. And, it, and honestly, I began to kind of have a little bit of a panic A little bit of a fit, you know I'm not happy, I'm kind of throwing a fit, I'm upset What am I going to do? Like, I got to get out of here I got multiple clients to get to This is bad, I'm going to be stuck here Can't call anybody at 3 o'clock in the morning And I'm just like, okay, get yourself together, Matt, you know What do I, what do I know to do here? And so I step back and I'm like I'm just, just going to pray I'm like, God, help me Help me, Lord I don't know what to do fix this you know and so as i'm praying i feel like the lord just speaks to me and says check the check this wiring harness and there's all kinds of wires and electrical components for all this stuff right i mean tons of them i didn't know what was what i'm like okay i'm gonna check this wiring harness so i open up the hood and there's this kind of one main harness so i'm like all right well i'll check it And i pull it apart now, I, I am not an electrician by any means at all and I'm looking at this wiring harness, like, what am, I, <laughs> what am I supposed to know here, you know? And I look over and I'm studying it and all of a sudden I notice something. There's like probably 50 wires connected to the harness and there's these tips that come out um, for the male end and then the female end has the holes and they plug in there, right? So there's all these wires and I look down and just one of those little bitty tips is like bent over and it just kind of cracked. And I'm like, well, that might not be making a good connection, So I went into the toolbox, I got out some tools, and I pulled that and fixed it and kind of drove it in there straight and temporary fix until I could get a new harness. I plugged the thing in, and it started working immediately, immediately. And I thought to myself, you better give God glory for this. And I I had a praise session at 3 o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere in a GMC 2500 cab like nobody's business, baby. (laughs) Me and God celebrating. But I'm just telling you, the Lord will do that for you. He will do that for you when your heart lines up with what he wants, with his will and what he's trying to lead you into. When you're in the will of God, wisdom will just flow into your life in every season of your life. There was a moment even a couple weeks ago where I needed an answer for something I didn't know, and I prayed before I went to bed. I prayed that God would help me see, help me know what what was causing this, what was going on. And I went to sleep. And I woke up and I knew the answer. Now, the answer that I had was not an answer that I ever researched or ever knew about. I couldn't have figured this out. And you say, well, how do you, I, all I can tell you is I just knew that God spoke that to me. I just knew that He gave me that. And sure enough, it's been working ever since I started doing it. But you say, well, how, you, you were asleep. I'm not really sure about that. Listen, let me, let me tell you something the physical body rests. The mind keeps working, the spirit never sleeps, and the spirit of God never sleeps either. There is plenty of spiritual activity that is happening in our spirit even when we are at rest if we are open to receive the wisdom and full counsel of God. Let me prove that to you. Job chapter 33, verses 15 and 16. In a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls upon men, when slumbering in their beds, he opens their ears of men and seals their instruction. You'll probably pray differently before you go to sleep from now on, won't you? I hope you do because the wisdom of God can be flowing into your life even in those moments. And so here's why I want to end today. Is we have, you know, a tendency when we are needing an answer to something. When we're trying to find information in um, fact, there's even a very popular phrase or term That we say all the time You need to look something up you need an answer to something What do you say? Google it, right? Just Google it Bella's shirt says Google it I don't know why she wore that today But she says Google it So Google is a search engine It's a massive search engine That has access to a ton of information That's what makes it effective Is it can search through data that is compiled and then, com- and then it can bring back an answer from sifting through that data. Now listen to this. I did a little bit of research because I was just kind of interested. And it says that Google can hold up to 1,200 petabytes of data. Now I know that it makes sense to me. I know that probably doesn't make sense to you. But petabytes, right? No, I have no idea. So then let me clarify that for you. 1,200 petabytes is 1.2 million terabytes of information. So now you understand, right? So it's a lot of information. But here's my, here's my point. Even Google is limited. There's an end. Even Google stops at some point. Now it is growing, and it is expanding, and I know that, it keeps doing that, right? But even Google has an end. But can I tell you something? You have access as a child of God, to the greatest search engine that it's ever been, the Holy Spirit, on the inside of you, that searches the deep things of God, unknowable to man apart from Him. He is the greatest search engine that there is. Let's think about this, Google is a robot. The Holy Spirit is a person. Google learns you, the Holy Spirit knows you he created you he is there for whatever it is that we need as we go through every season every kairos of our lives and he's there to search things out in the counsel of God and pour them into impart them into your spirit we can be like the sons of Issachar having the wisdom and understanding of God flowing into our lives and knowing what we ought to do in any season of time. Let's close with this verse. 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now get this. Please get this. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So here's what's happening. If you're a born-again believer, if you know Christ, you've given your life to him, the Holy Spirit fills you. He comes to live on the inside of you. You're filled with the life of God. You're born again. You are alive spiritually now. Holy Spirit is in us. He is the person of God, the third person of the Trinity, and he has access to the full wisdom and full counsel of God. And as he searches the things of God through that infinite database, if you will, he brings back answers and wisdom, and he reveals them to our spirit inside. He's a search engine, and he's a perfect one and he's unlimited, there is no end to his knowledge or his understanding. And I pray today that as we go out of here, that you will choose to be like a container, ready to be filled in every kairos of your life with the wisdom and understanding of God, to know the times we live in and to know what we need to do about that. Individually, as our, in our families, in our homes, in our community, And as a church, that we would continue to grow strong together, rise up, and be the influencing people like the sons of Issachar in our generation. Amen.